0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Elixir Mix. Uh, This week on our panel, we have Adi Iyengar. Hello. Sasha Wolf. Hello, hello. Alan Wyma. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we have a special guest. We have Sophie back. Sophie, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately i've been working on actually building out top end devs if you're interested you can go to slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why i'm doing what i'm doing with top end devs why i changed it from uh, devchat.tv to top end devs but what i really want to get into is that i have decided that i'm going to build the platform that i always wished i had with devchat.tv So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. We ran across an article you wrote for AppSignal. It was the integration testing live view. And anyway, a lot of interesting stuff here. I. I always like to ask when I run across an article like this, especially one as thorough as this one is, was there something that prompted you to write this article? Like, were you doing this at work and thought, oh, this would be really good for people to know how to do? Or yeah, is there a story behind this? that's a great
1: question. Uh, Yeah, there is sort of a bit of a story behind it. I'll sort of preempt the question I get a lot, which is that no, we do not use Elixir at GitHub, uh, parentheses yet. So this is not inspired by (laughs) something I was doing at work, but it is inspired by some work for the Programming Live book that Bruce Tate and I have been working on. and it's um, Yeah, definitely inspired by the testing chapter there. Just a bit of a deeper dive.
0: Makes sense. So I have to say I am not the most diligent at writing integration tests. I'm pretty good with the unit tests just because they're easy and fast. So you want to kind of just walk us through the approach here and we can ask questions as we go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll pick up on a phrase that you just said, which is easy and fast. And I think uh, a lot of us probably suffer from that same bias. We're going to write lots of unit tests because they're easy and fast. And we're going to write fewer integration tests because they are slower and more difficult to put together. Uh, and that's okay too, right? That's kind of the approach that uh, works in a lot of cases. Your unit tests can go really deep and they can also go really broad. And then your integration test can kind of hit the highlights. But One of the things I love about LiveView is that you can write integration tests that are easy and fast because you're empowered to write pure Elixir tests that exercise like the full capabilities of your interactive single page flow without, like I said, without leaving Elixir. So you can do pretty much everything or you can exercise pretty much everything that a user can do on the page just in Elixir tests. And if anyone here or anyone listening has wrestled with, I don't know, Mocha or Unit or any of the 5,000 other JS testing frameworks. I think that that prospect might sound pretty appealing. So that's definitely one of the, um, one of the really big benefits of working with LiveView. I think the thing that I, I like to talk about a lot is that you can just be really productive in LiveView because you're not trying to coordinate and synchronize a front end app and a back end app. You're not dealing with this separate. JavaScript client versus your let's say backend API, and that is very much true in your testing story as well. so for live view integration tests, and when I say integration tests, I just mean the ability to kind of like bring up your live view page, have the user fire off any interactions that you could imagine supporting in that page, and then validating the behavior of those interactions, you basically mount your live view by like starting up a request to your live view, and then there's so much support to do, pretty much like I said anything you can do you can click buttons and submit forms and all of that good stuff and then you can create assertions against the results and that's pretty much it as far as like a walkthrough of integration testing in live view it's basically that simple
0: cool so i mean one thing that i saw here is uh, part of the way that you bring in the test is you actually import the live view test module now what what exactly mm-hmm. does that give you on this stuff
1: yeah. So the live view testing module is kind of what brings in or the behavior, right? So we're importing, I think we're using the Elixir behavior. Or are we importing the module? No, I honestly don't remember. We are importing the module. Yeah, you're right. So the live view test module brings in all the testing niceties uh, that you need to test your live view. It gives you the ability to mount the connected live view. And then it brings in all of the helpers for selecting elements, firing events, and triggering all of the live view UI interactions. And then the ability to Uh, capture the results of those interactions on the page and test them. So pretty much all the magic happens in the live view test module. But again, that's all really just built on top of X unit. So the tests that you write for your live views are not going to look or feel different than your average X unit unit test, right? You're going to be working with your test connection. You're going to be opening and closing test blocks. You're going to have your fixtures. You're going to use your assert and refute test functions, so unlike how difficult it can be to kind of hook up, let's say, a front end to a back end and do a true integration test in an environment where you have something like, let's say, a Phoenix API and a React client, uh, everything happens in XUnit with the help of the LiveView test module. And it's just really easy to get up and running like many things in LiveView.
2: So, for, for somebody who has maybe already a lot of experience testing air quotes, normal views, non live views, like, I don't know, dead views, I guess, <laughs> would you say it's easier actually to test a live view compared to like a run of the mill HTML dead view?
1: I would, provided that you have like any kind of JavaScript on that page that you need to test and exercise the interactions for. That's going to become kind of a pain in the butt frankly if you need to now bring in some sort of javascript testing framework like into your phoenix ops test suite when it's in live view it's all x unit with the help of the live view test module and you can test all of your interactions and the reason that that's true is because so i think like the tagline that comes with live view a lot is that you get these single page apps you get all this interactivity and you don't have to use any JavaScript, right? It's like interactivity without JavaScript. And it's it's not quite true, right? Because LiveView has plenty of JavaScript, but it's all where it belongs, in my opinion, which is in the framework. You, the application developer, aren't on the hook for writing your own JavaScript to manage the interactions that underlie like most of the common single page flows that you're pretty much used to seeing on the web. And that includes, I would also say like push notifications, which I'll talk about testing if you guys are interested in a bit. So all the JavaScript is in the LiveView framework, so you don't need to write JavaScript tests to test that JavaScript because you can trust that the framework works. If you're testing a Rails app, let's say you're not going to like test active record associations because you can trust that active record works. If you're writing a LiveView app, you don't need to test the JavaScript that lives under the hood of LiveView. Because you can trust that the framework works. You can just use the test functionality that's exposed to you through the LiveView test module to exercise the interactions that you, the application developer, have built into your LiveView. And just like you didn't have to write any JavaScript to support those interactions, you don't have to write any JavaScript to test those interactions either.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, at the end, it's all about ownership, right? Like you don't own the JavaScript which runs
3: LiveView, so it's not your
1: responsibility. Absolutely.
3: Yeah, I, I think the that. big question we always have is, how do we test those hooks? That's the problem that we always keep, yeah, yeah. Yeah. keep to asking ask this exactly. question. I, to <laughs> I beat exactly. you to it. I got the book. I haven't read it yet. How do I test my hooks?
1: Yeah, we actually don't have any content in the book yet on testing hooks. And I, I still have that same <sighs> question. I will, I will admit that I have not written any tests for JavaScript hooks. Yeah, I'm um, as in the dark as you guys. Have you guys tried at all? I'm curious what well, first I of all, you so
3: just heard the feelings backwards. of everybody in this room, except for me, because I never test my hooks. And everybody over here is a test-a-maniac. <laughs> we had this big thing where it was like five versus one where I said, I don't really test all my stuff. And then everybody over here was like, No, 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 you gotta do TDD. And well, shame me I mean, to death.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a hot topic, of course. So those of you who have tested your hooks, what do you do?
4: Is isn't there like a render hook helper in Live View test module that allows you to like uh, send a hook event to a Live View and then after you've spawned a Live, you can like call render hook on the view that it returns and see what the HTML gets updated to.
2: There is a render hook function. I'm not sure what it does. Just look piece the a <laughs> documentation.
4: <laughs> so it basically, it returns the HTML after the Live View would have received that hook.
1: That sounds helpful.
3: So wait, there's actually a JavaScript something going on because I thought everything was kind of being emulated. Yeah, that's a very really interesting question. I like
2: probably this, this refers to server side hooks. I guess. Because yeah, I mean, there are also those.
4: Right. So I think the hook is the uh what you what you receive on your handle info or handle uh, event on the live view. It's not the Phoenix dash hook attribute.
2: Yeah, yeah that, make, that makes more sense. I, I do assume that the whole live view testing story completely happens on the server side, right? Like there's no JavaScript it's magic. A, yep, yeah, it's, there. Yep.
1: yeah, it's mimicking the impact on the server that would happen if somebody was interacting with the client. I sort of feel like to test hooks, you would probably end up having to bring in one of these JS testing frameworks, like bring in Jest or something. Um, so it's certainly possible, right? And it's no more difficult than it would be to test the JavaScript on your Sasha, like you were saying, your your dead view, your regular, you know, HTML view rendered by a Phoenix controller. But it would be neat if there was some sort of like really nice live view testing story around that. But it's, it's not not supported, right? You can test it the way that you would normally test your JavaScript.
2: Yeah, yeah it makes sense. Right. I mean, th- There was also a while ago, like years, literally, there was this Elixir script story about transpiling Elixir to JavaScript. So maybe we can revive that and then <laughs> use that to write our client side. <laughs> <laughs> like Sounds words. easy. Yeah,
1: let's just do that <laughs> real quick and uh, get that out. <laughs>
4: Yeah, we actually use at my place. We use uh, because everyone's familiar with like Ruby. We just use Capybara to Mm -hmm. test uh, uh, to like basically do the browser tests for the actually actual Phoenix hook events. The reason why you just can't Mm -hmm. do it, you just uh, I tried. I I went down the rabbit hole. Like, is there a way I could do that just with Phoenix Live View tests? just there's just lack of a web server, right? Like, it's again, there's no uh, TCP layer to uh, contests and Phoenix Live View tests. Like, without that, it's hard to send like a Phoenix click event, right? Like there's no transport for Mm -hmm. that. So, yeah.
1: One thing I'm curious to hear from you guys if you're working a lot with Live View these days is what you're using hooks for. Because one of the things that, it sort of grates me a little bit when I have to reach for hooks because I don't want ever to write any of my own JavaScript. And one of the things I'm noticing, I don't know if you guys have checked out the JS commands functionality that's now part of like the later editions of Live View. Some of the stuff that you would have had to reach for hooks for more commonly, like the simple actions of like showing and closing a modal, are now supported like within the LiveView framework via JS commands. So I think that would also make your testing story a little bit easier because you didn't have to spin up a custom hook for that. But yeah, what are y'all using hooks for?
2: I have to admit that, like, while, while I love LiveView, I d- don't have
0: yet used it in production. So sorry. I'm, sorry.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not using it in production either. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Where are my. Uh sound effects here i think i've got some oh i don't have a sad trombone i need to find one and be disappointed anyway
2: ellen i feel like you have done a bit more of any of live view work so maybe you can tell a bit more about your untested javascript hooks
3: yeah so the first time i did live view i actually did an integration test when i did it and i did a really crazy one so i did it for first i did it i did it because i wanted to pass a test for a job and they were like, okay, you can use like Redis, you can use all these things. And I was like, let me just use straight up LiveView and OTP to kind of hold state. And uh, I was pretty proud of it. Like I had all this crazy stuff where you can soft reserve tickets. And mm-hmm. like, if you had like a down for how many tickets you wanted, that would actually take uh, away from everybody else. So you can soft reserve it. If you ever dropped off, then those would be released. It was really, really cool. And the way I did the modal was like, I just had like, uh, you did like bootstrap and just like showed and removed like the classes. So that mm-hmm. was the only way I did it.
1: Yeah, that's um, pretty much what JS commands are. So I think you invented yeah. commands so I might just do before that. they were.
3: Otherwise, then, then the next time around, when I got into it some more, I started playing with uh, like pedal stack stuff. So using Alpine to do Very everything cool. I want to do. That's been making things a lot easier. Since I did Alpine, I, I really don't write any kind of real JavaScript anymore for the most part. Mm-hmm. Alpine just kind of makes everything <laughs> so simple.
1: i yeah, I've been doing stimulus Alpine.
0: lately and the same deal, mm-hmm. right? Super simple. Anyway, what were you saying about Alpine, Toby?
1: Oh, I was just saying, Alan, I'm glad you mentioned Alpine because I'm kind of in the market for someone that wants to write maybe like a really short Pog book, maybe one of our answer series on working with Phoenix and Alpine. So if you're interested and you feel like you've always wanted to write a book or if any of your listeners are interested, they should reach out to me on Twitter or something and we should talk.
3: Ready for you. I've been I've been waiting for this moment all my life.
1: You know, you might be kidding, but I'm I'm gonna take that very seriously, and I'm gonna follow up with you mm-hmm. on that. I'm
3: serious. I'm ready to to do this because I really want to pass that's along awesome. some knowledge. As that's
1: actually great to hear. I program
3: the, the same. I program the same way. I learned how to bowl. Just keep getting, keep hitting gutter balls until I get it all going. That's been my yep, entire Webpack life. That
1: yep. That's been
3: my entire Webpack life. We talked about this about a few months ago with Chuck that I spent more than a day <laughs> on Webpack, and I wanted to murder myself.
2: So you photo to your folks. Is it going to be a Pragmatic Programming
3: book
1: on Alpine. <laughs> exactly. You're going to have to hold Alan to that.
4: I'll do it. A, a quick question. Sophie, you mentioned JS commands. I am not familiar with that. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Like, is, how, how new is it?
1: It's super new. I actually haven't done anything with it yet. Um, it's just on my list of things that have to go into the new edition of the Programming Live book because there are so many new things that have to go into the new edition of the LiveView book. But it's basically kind of a a step forward in LiveView's JS Interop story. And it makes it super easy to apply some of the more common interactions that you would want to have happen purely on the client side without round tripping to the server. And I think the one that comes to mind, at least from the docs, the most common example of like showing and hiding a modal so, yeah, I can't tell you too much about you know like my experiences working with it because I don't have any experiences yet, although it's on the list. But that is, I'm actually just pulling it up right now to refresh my memory. Yeah, so it's kind of like a wrapper around live view event bindings, and it allows you to specify that certain operations should occur on the client side as a result of firing Phoenix binding events. So instead of let's say having to round trip to the server. To show or hide a modal, again, the LiveView framework JavaScript will handle that for you. You don't have to do it yourself in response to a particular Phoenix event firing. And I think the way it does that under the hood is that the JavaScript will do things like apply and remove classes to like show and hide content. That's very cool. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely in response to a big concern that a lot of people have when working with LiveView, which is that you have to round trip to the server for all of your interactions, right. even the like, really tiny ones, like, again, showing and hiding a modal. So, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about LiveView and appreciated a lot uh, about Chris and the rest of the team working on it is that they are responding really quickly to the feedback that they're getting from the community. And the framework has been advancing so much in the past year or so, even if it means I have a lot of work to do on this book that keeps changing. <laughs> it's still so great that it changes so much.
4: Hindsight, should you have started writing the book a little later?
1: <laughs> no, because I think the hardest part of writing for Me, I think, especially a book of this size is not, you know, getting every nitty gritty detail, right? It's getting that overall narrative in place. So yeah, we have a lot of work to do to get things up to date and maybe even keep it up to date in the coming months. But that's not, that's not like the part that's as much of an intellectual challenge as like stringing together 13 chapters of storyline.
2: So, so I wonder when, when, when we go into this area of like also doing a bit of logic on the client side, like showing a modal, hiding a modal. Mm-hmm. And- at which point would you then say, okay, now maybe I actually want to do some browser testing, for example, right? Like more than the usual Live view testing gives you. And that where is maybe then the point where you even would say, okay, this now becomes so complex. Maybe I should actually do reach for that single page application with React. Like they there like an anti-pattern of saying, I don't know, now I'm having so much, so so such complex browser tests for my Live view app, m- maybe this shouldn't be this, the state of my system?
1: That's a great question. And I think that's a good place to draw the line, asking yourself, when does your custom JavaScript become so complex and when do your does your testing logic become so complex that you're needing to rely on these external frameworks? But I think the great thing about LiveView, especially with its recent uh, growth towards JS commands and the other JS interrupt support, is that the framework itself handles, I would say, 98, 99% of the common interactions and real-time behavior that your average web page is going to need to support. So if you're creating an in-browser game, let's say Live View is probably not what you need. But if you're creating like a standard CRUD app, your standard CRUD app these days needs to be pretty interactive, right? You need to show and hide things. You need a multi-stage form. Maybe you need a push notification when someone has a new message. LiveView framework handles all of that kind of stuff for you right out of the box. And I think that's really the strongest argument to make and the strongest use case for LiveView. But I would absolutely admit and say that the more intricate and advanced custom JavaScript interactions, like maybe don't find a home in LiveView.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. So it could even become like a little bit of a litmus test where you say, okay, now I really feel I need to reach for these tools. Maybe I should reconsider but it, it would be an interesting story to hear about people who made actually have done that and how 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 painful or maybe even easy it was.
1: Yeah, I'd be very curious to hear more stories of Live View in the wild. I definitely encourage people to check out. There were a lot of Live View talks at ElixirConf in October, but they were it was good, I think, to have that volume of Live View content because it was really interesting to start to hear from people that were using it in production and and how it was helping them and when they were reaching for it and there were a handful of folks that were working in smaller companies maybe smaller consultancies or startups that found that they were able to prototype and deliver things for their clients really quickly and efficiently using LiveView and I think that that's really interesting because if you go back like. I don't know seven years or something. That's the story that you were hearing about Rails, right? Okay, we've got our fifteen minute you know blog app for you. We've got a quick CRUD app that we can spin up for our clients, and Rails is going to let us do it. And I think that LiveView is the new answer to that story.
4: So I have been building this new sort of platform, a suite of applications, and we're like completely on like Pedal Stack. One of the th- conclusions that I came to it's a couple of weeks ago. Was that? I think just building live view and like uh, routing like a request to live directly. Just you just I feel like you tend to lose control, right? The plug pipeline doesn't apply to the to the events and stuff. And I resort to the regular controls and regular views with and rendering live components, like only specific components of the page that are live, but still have the overall you know, re- retain the overall control of the, the view. And I'm curious to hear things around that because like uh, uh, the application that I'm working, authentication and like session uh, being alive and stuff, it's very, very important because it's it's a healthier application. So uh, do, you, do you guys have similar experiences? Uh, Sophie, you, you're, yeah, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on have that. Maybe you see
1: me kind of like itching to respond to this. Yes, so this is a very real concern. And this is something that, again, Chris and the LiveView team have absolutely heard and have acted on in some of the more recent versions of Live View, with two new features that have come out, which are live sessions that pair really nicely with Live View lifecycle callbacks, in particular, the new on-mount callbacks. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that now. So, Audio, what you said is absolutely right, which is once you... So, when you first make a request to a live view, like from the browser, right, you type in whatever slash your live view route, that's going to be an HTTP request. It's going to go through your plug pipeline. You're going to get your authentication. You're going to get your authorization that you've built into plugs. But then if you navigate between live views and, let's say, a live redirect, where you're reusing the existing WebSocket connection, you're reusing the existing Live View uh, root layout. You are not creating another HTTP request. You are not going through your plug pipeline. You are not as secure as you were before. So that leaves us in a bind, right? Because we love Live Redirect because it's efficient. It reuses the existing WebSocket connection. We're not re. Mounting and rendering the root layout or minimizing the amount of data that we're sending down over the wire. These are all some of the reasons why Live View is so snappy and so fast for our users, but we're skipping our authentication pipelines in our plugs and that's absolutely no good. So here is the uh, official kind of approach to this now because the live view framework now does expose an API that helps you scratch exactly this edge. You can group a set of live views together in a live session block in your router. The live session block, and this is all in the docs now, I see audio like writing down. Yeah, you can find this in the docs. The live <laughs> session block means two things. It means that you can, if you want to, share a root layout among a common group of live views so that you can live redirect between them without, remounting the root layout and without sending a new HTTP request and so you could imagine like all your admin routes that share a common layout with like a certain menu on top maybe share a certain live session all of your routes that are authenticated for regular users maybe share a certain block all of your routes that are authenticated for I don't know super users or students versus teachers whatever share live sessions share route Within that live session in the router, there's a really nice uh, little API where you basically specify what function should fire on the mount of any of the live views in that block. And in that on mount callback is where you're gonna put your additional authorization and authentication logic. So essentially you're gonna need and want to authorize and authenticate in your plug pipeline and in your on-mount callbacks specified in your live session. And, you know, Elixir pattern matching is really nice. You can get like one module going that maybe implements like a set of on-mount callbacks, one of them pattern matches admin, the other one student, the other teacher, whatever. And then those on-mount callbacks will be triggered before the mount of the live view that's being live redirected to in the live session. You'll have your params, you'll have your session, you'll have your socket you can pull out whatever you need to perform authentication and authorization. And then you return, I think, like a continue tuple. It's like colon, it's a symbol, C-O-N-T, comma socket. If you're like, good to go, you are the user, you are allowed to do the things. And you return a halt tuple if you want to then redirect them, let's say back to login or somewhere else. So there's a really nice API now for solving exactly this problem. And you can read all about it in the book when we're finished writing these changes. (laughs) Buy the book. Buy the book in three <laughs>
4: weeks when I'm done. I'm really impressed. So when was when did all these features come out? I
1: Yeah, these are all brand new. Wow. The first I heard of them, I think Chris debuted them. I don't know exactly when they came out in terms of like being live in the latest versions and in the docs, but Chris's um, keynote at ElixirConf, definitely check that out. It's basically just runs down this and JS commands and many more of the changes as well as gives us a nice view into what's coming. For Live View, which is a lot of things borrowed from Surface, you know, really nice convergence there. We're going to get declarative assigns, for example, in Live View uh, components. At least I'm not sure if we'll get them in regular Live Views. And um, yeah, so I think they're certainly not older than like maybe September, October. A lot of the stuff is brand new.
0: Very well. wow. So when do we get this stuff in Rails? Because that's, that's what right. I do. <laughs>
1: oh yeah, September that's I'm what here. you want to know, Charles.
0: I've been wanting to know this for years, so.
1: Well, I mean, Rails is trying, right? What do they have now? Hot rod or something? What's hot their? wire? Hot wire, excuse me. Yeah.
0: But it's, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not the same as live, live view.
1: I mean, it's missing OTP, so I think it's, you right. know, it's not going to have <laughs> yeah. some yeah. of the things yeah. that that live view is going to have. It's not going to have the fault tolerance the concurrency it's not process yeah. communication
3: i thought you quit rails chuck are you back on the on the rails now
0: i was looking at possibly picking up an elixir job and i talked to a few folks but the yeah the deal that i wound up getting the best kind of set up on was a rails contract so yeah that's kind of where i'm at so i'll just play so with now, elixir in my spare time
3: i thought now you can start to slowly sneak in some otp here and there
0: i am doing that a little bit with some of the other stuff that i'm working on but it's just it's it's a side project and so it yeah. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go, and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching
4: just going to write a Ruby transpiler for uh, Elixir transpiler for Ruby, right? Like just a uh, language that converts Ruby to Elixir, then we're all, we're all good.
0: Hey, there we go. Yeah. So are there any other things that are coming down the pipe for Live View?
1: Yeah, definitely. Right. So something that keeping an eye on, I don't know. If you guys are familiar, if you've worked with the Surface Component Library at all, created by Marlis, I'm going to get his last name wrong, so I'm just going to say Marlis because his last name is a little hard to pronounce. And so Surface Component Library kind of exists separately from LiveView because it is like a freer space for a faster pace of development around LiveView components, LiveView syntax. It strives to create like a more ergonomic LiveView component experience. So when Surface first came out, you had a really nice eloquent component rendering syntax. You had uh, Heeks actually started in Surface, right? So not just our EEX templates, but the Heeks templates that do Elixir uh, templating as well as HTML parsing and validation that came from Surface and other things that Surface alone had at the time and actually still does declarative assigns, a nice API for specifying you know, which parts of assigns are gonna be maintained internally within a component and which might be passed in from a parent other things that i'm sure i'm forgetting slots which are now part of live view components this idea that i can open and close my component tags and then dynamically render content you know within the inner body of a component so surface is sort of the place where a lot of the stuff is getting pushed forward more quickly and then it's being absorbed into the live view core so now we have slots in live view components we have the same eloquent ergonomic syntax for component rendering in live view core we have heeks in not just live view but also phoenix So other things that are going to come to Live View from Surface, as as far as I understand it, that are on the roadmap are the declarative designs. And what else is coming down the pipe for Live View? I definitely recommend that folks check out uh, Chris McCord's Elixir Conf Talk because he sort of goes into it in a whole section. But I'm excited to see what happens next. And I'm also excited that I think a lot of people are wondering what the purpose of Surface will continue to be now that so much of it is getting absorbed into LiveView. And as far as I understand it from Marlis is that it's very much gonna to continue to exist as a standalone library to be this location of this faster pace of development uh, with the understanding that a lot of the things that are pioneered and innovated within Surface will then eventually be adopted into LiveView Core, but having it happen in Surface just lets it happen faster. Let's us start battle testing it and getting feedback from the community before we figure out uh, exactly how to absorb it into LiveView.
2: Yeah, I love to see that, like how how these ideas pioneered in like other libraries and then get slowly integrated into Phoenix and LiveView itself. I mean, uh, Heeks is like a perfect example of that. I have to ask, it's like, is Heeks the official pronunciation? Because I always used to say E E X, and now it's Heeks. <laughs> okay. Heeks. Heeks it is, all the way. Mm-hmm. A confusing
4: I mean... with Hex and Heeks, but sure. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I also see, like for example, the, the the whole idea around showing models is something which has definitely taken inspiration from Alpine. So like it, it's really cool to see how how all these projects inspire themselves, like and, and how some of these projects and different ecosystems then inspire changes in our ecosystem in Elixir. Alpine, for example, came from the PHP community, so it, it's really cool to see, to see all of that happening. Uh, it's really, really, really fun to see this new era it kind of feels like a new gold digger era of like this this really live web server-side based rendering approach really fun
4: wasn't live view itself inspi i don't want to say inspired i don't want to use the wrong word but like definitely the ideas were taken from drab was there a framework like drab i don't know if you guys remember it did it in a similar way not as in a, in a not as cohesive way as live view but it did have a way to you know pass events to your views and, you know, using OTP, using processes and like a OTP abstraction of web, web sockets, uh, 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 if I could say that. But so, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if it was inspired, but yeah, Sasha, so right. Like, I mean, LiveView itself, I think was at least to some extent inspired by draft. I'd be wrong if I, said, if I said that. So, Sophie, do you think it was inspired? I actually don't even know the story.
1: <laughs> yeah, I actually, that's the first I'm hearing of it. I sort of always heard the narrative of like, I guess this is more the narrative around like Phoenix channels in the first place, right? Like Jose coming over from Rails and wanting a framework that would support that real time and knowing that or coming to understand that it's something that OTP could give him. But yeah, if anyone knows the like secret backstory of Live View, I'm certainly all ears.
3: From what I remember when it was first introduced, he and Chris McCord actually already had something kind of working in Ruby or Rails, I think. Ruby, I should be. And it just wasn't working out because of the way Ruby works. Like, it doesn't work the same way. Obviously, the, the VM, right, it's totally different. And he ended up trying to spin up a bunch of threads, but they kept dying. And then he kind of, like, gave up. You can actually see his project on GitHub somewhere. I think I don't know if it's still there, but I'm pretty sure it probably is. That's what I've heard. Drab, I'm not too sure if that inspired it. But I'm guessing if it came out before he started working on this, I wouldn't be surprised if he took some inspiration from it. But, yeah, that's the story I remember hearing when he first came out with LiveView was he kind of like went back to his old idea and said okay i think this could work now because we have otp processes etc yeah, there's a project it's called RenderSync, real-time
2: rails partials that might be what you mentioned I can put a, put a link to that in the show notes and then people can check it out interesting it's really yeah it's interesting just to see all of these ideas
0: inspire each other yeah. um so think you talk about the book
4: <laughs> yeah we should <laughs>
0: So uh, what what kind of brought this book about and how did you and Bruce wind up putting your heads together on this?
1: Yeah, so Bruce, I think, started it off uh, on his own. This was probably like almost two years ago at this point. So very early days for LiveView. And then maybe ended up putting it on hold because he was working on a lot of other projects and stuff with Grafzio. And then he and I connected, I think, at ElixirConf was was in Denver a couple of years ago. And uh, he was looking to get the book back up and running looking for a co author. I had been doing some writing around live View at the time, just, you know, blogging this and that. And kind of the rest is history from there. And I honestly couldn't ask for a better co author. This is the first book that I've ever written or participated in. And Bruce is very much old hat at this. So it's been incredible learning from him and learning from our editor, Jackie Carter, who is like absolutely a wizard at this. And every time I talk to her, I just feel myself becoming smarter and a better writer. And we've been working on it now for a while, actually, I think we did we got started in earnest maybe September of twenty twenty got through all thirteen chapters, which is a lot in the past couple of months and Now we're just going through because there are some major changes as we've talked about uh, already today in the Live View version and even just with the latest Phoenix version using Heeks and other things. So we definitely have our work cut out for us to get it up to date. I think that the book right now is, if you're using, if you want to use this book and the latest version of Phoenix, it's just frankly not going to work. So we're definitely hoping to get out the new release uh, within the next couple of weeks to get people, again, something that's usable. But I'll remind your listeners that if you've bought the beta version or if you buy the beta version, you get all the latest releases for free. So you don't have to worry about, you know, like waiting until it's exactly perfect before you spend your hard earned money.
4: So I have, I have, a, I have a question uh, just out of curiosity. I've always wondered, and so as someone who's worked with Bruce, like it feels like every other good elixir book he is a co author on or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, like uh, I know, like seven languages in seven weeks was like, uh, I remember I did that. I did that in one week, but Mm -hmm. that week was like the inflection point of my... Programming life, like I just, my yeah, my programming capacity just increased, and like I, I started noticing his name like everywhere. Like, how? What is his Mo? How does he manage to like co-author like two or three books a year? Like, how's that possible?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I don't think he does two or three books a year. Like, I think he probably does one book a year because it is a big commitment. But having a co-author makes a really big difference for some of the book. The way that we would do it is he would write the code and I would write the prose for like maybe the first half, and then I think we switch towards the back end of it. But Bruce works hard, man. He works really hard to, I think, like build out the resources that our community needs to bring in new engineers and to to train people up and to popularize some of these best practices and design patterns that we want to see grow. But he works with great people, right? He works with great co-authors, not just myself, of course. You know, James and others, great uh, editors, a lot of support at PragProg. And, you know, his, his wife, Maggie, works with him on Graxio, which is, I don't know if you guys have checked it out or if your listeners have checked it out, but Graxio is just a ton of online courses and content for learning Elixir, learning LiveView, and uh, now starting to get into machine learning or some Julia content on there. And I think there'll be more stuff in that vein soon. So yeah, Bruce is very dedicated to supporting this community, getting this content out there. And I feel very lucky that we were able to team up on this. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Yep. So do we have a release date on the book?
1: So we are trying, like, I mean, it's out, right, in beta. You can get it now. You can download right, right. the e-version from PragProg. You'll get each new release as it comes out. As far as the alpha print version, we are waiting. We want to wait until LiveView hits 1.0. Otherwise, we'll have printed something that may need major changes, which is no good. But certain people are not sure when LiveView is going to hit 1.0. <laughs> so I can't be, you know, okay. I don't know. Yeah hopefully within, I don't know, the next six months, but we'll see. And I would never presume to rush Chris or any of the other folks that are hard at work at LiveView because they've, you know, got some ideas of where it needs to go and what's coming up. And I'm just really excited to see what happens.
0: Yeah. Well, they're going to release it when it's ready. And we don't necessarily want them to
1: do that before then. So. That's exactly right. <laughs> so that's- yeah, exactly.
0: Very cool. So do you have any other projects going once this is finished or are you just going to kind of take a deep breath and
1: Yeah. I've always got a million things. I would love to go to a beach. I have been sort of craving a beach vacation. Um, no, I've always got a million things going on. So I've actually taken over from Bruce as the Elixir series editor at Prague Prague. So that was sort of Mm -hmm. what was behind my solicitation of a pedal stack or an Alpine book earlier, as well as taking over from him, the seven and seven series at Prague Prague. So we've got some cool stuff coming out. I don't know if things will be publishing in the next year or so, but definitely getting underway. I think we're going to be doing a new edition of seven databases in seven weeks and some other proposals that I'm excited for that I won't mention yet, just because it's super early days and may or may not team up with Bruce to write another book in the machine learning space. Once we wrap this one up shorter... Uh, Not sort of the full length of programming live view, but we've had to push that back a little bit since we have a lot of changes to accommodate in programming live view. So some, you know, editorial or book projects on the horizon and just trying to stay connected to Elixir, even though I unfortunately don't get to write it as much as I'd like to.
0: I hear you there. Well, I know a machine learning podcast that you're welcome on. So
1: (laughs) good to know. First, I need to learn it. Um, That was actually why I agreed to team up with Bruce on this, pardon me, on this subsequent book, because I know so little about it, but I've always wanted to dive in. So I thought this would be a good forcing mechanism. I'm a little nervous since math was never my strong suit. I'm going to have to go back to some of the basics, but I think it'll be, I think it'll be good.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some element of that, but I don't know. I've been podcasting about machine learning and talking to people about it for quite a while. And the The math a lot of times gets handled by other systems, and so it's not as scary as it sounds. Yeah, we actually had a recent episode
2: with like the folks from Tangram, right, where you also talked about that there's yeah. some work happening to do a bit more of abstraction around that. But they also admitted that there is a bit of a gap in education material to get people up to speed on the math subjects if you're not already into those math subjects. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's part of the gap that we're hoping to fill with this shorter book, which I, I won't go too into the details of because we haven't started writing it. And there's no timeline yet. So I don't want to like, get anyone's hopes up. But it's very much designed to scratch the edge of people like me that don't have a strong math background, but who are engineers and where that is the barrier to getting into machine learning. You know, what's the math that you need to know as a developer to dive into this aspect of our field?
2: Right. So it will go into topics like linear regression and all, all that stuff, which I know the word of, and I've like learned during studies, but that's about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, that that class is the class I took twice in college because I failed it the first time. So, it, yeah, it's, it's tricky stuff for sure. But, yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, uh, I do want to
4: quickly... I don't want to highlight one thing uh, that I found really cool and so very obvious to everyone. Like Sophie saying that she's going to, she wants to do this machine learning book because she wants to learn it, right? And that, uh, like that realization of like, writing a book to learn something that i had early this year and so i actually spoke with sophie about it like i was not even sure if i want to write a book and she really encouraged me uh, that oh you don't necessarily need to know everything before writing it and like as just like readers we tend to think that you know these authors are like Mm -hmm. sophie she she knows everything or bruce they know everything right but it's good to see that they are learning as they're writing a book so yeah definitely uh, you don't have to know everything before you write a book and uh, the more I know, yeah, people should feel empowered to just learn and write a book. And Sophie's a great example of that. Like she said herself, she's going to learn machine learning while writing a book. And I just wanted to highlight that fact.
0: Yep.
1: Yeah, that's no, a I great No, I would write out. a book. <laughs> <laughs> write a book? Yeah, let's talk, guys. No, I, I think that's a great call, and that's something that I would hear a lot from my students back when I was teaching at Flatir. and we would require them to write like a handful of blog posts over the course of the program, and a lot of people mm-hmm. really hesitate, and they would feel like that they had nothing to say and nothing to contribute because they weren't experts yet. They were still learning, and it's, it's hard to get over that hump, but you know, you learn more through writing because you have to understand it enough to explain it to someone else. And it doesn't matter exactly where you're at and your understanding. If you're ready to dive in and articulate it for others, it's going to help someone else out there. And it's also totally okay to be wrong. Like I've gotten feedback from our readers through the dev forum or whatever it is where you go and and talk about the book and made great changes and improvements because of those conversations. And I, I really welcome that.
0: Yep, absolutely. I've also found that that works well with, uh, doing a conference talk or things like that you know if you're going to go deep on uh, i guess a more narrow topic the conference talk approach works really well so
3: I think it also works well with kids right you never had a kid before once you get one then you kind of learn what to do right
0: (laughs) i've had almost 16 years of practice and i'm still screwing it up so
3: it's the same because i think i saw a mouse uh, next to sasha is that what you call a mouse
0: no that's actually by my son he's he's
2: the frog like, in, it's it's very common in Germany to give, like, animal nicknames to your kids. So
0: <laughs> it's not derogatory. De- de- I think I mispronounced that word. But yeah. Yeah. Good deal. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. All right, well, I am going to push us into picks. Alan, do you want to start us off?
3: Yeah, so I'm going to be a little bit shameless this week. Uh, as you can see, my skin's a little bit thick. I've been working on this course that kind of really like uh, struck me. So uh, if you go to Rust, I think it's rustwithflutter.com. Uh, I'm doing a course all about how you can integrate Rust and Flutter together. So when I did a couple of these podcasts, on my own kind of Flutter podcast, like Rust is always kind of the biggest thing out there. And I think that that's really interesting. And also, sometimes I want to bring in stuff that's really low level, like, I don't know, image editing, things like that. So I decided to kind of create a quick course, and it should be launching soon. So it's called Rust with RustWithFlutter.com. Uh, so check it out if you're interested with working with Flutter or Rust. So yeah, that's my pick.
0: Good deal. Sasha, what are your picks? I have surpassed this week. I have no pick. All right. Sadi, what are your picks?
4: I literally cannot come up with anything. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know what? I'll just throw it out there. I whenever, you know, I have like 10, 15 minutes and I want to just like, you know, improve my Elixir skills or like, you know, just learn something cool, I look at Elixir's source code. It's it's actually very well written and documented. So if you're curious to know how Elixir is implemented, how were they able to make it, you know, whatever, 90% bootstrap, right? Like why do macros work the way they do? Like it's really cool. It's actually Uses OTP in its compilation very heavily. They use like processes to store the state of a uh, half compiled module, for example. It, it's really cool to uh, check it out. So that's that's not big. Just look at uh, GitHub Elixir Lang, such Elixir. Just look at the source code. It's it's really cool.
0: Cool. I'm going to jump in with a few picks. First of all, I'm going to do. I'm going to just talk about top end devs for a second. If you sign up by my birthday this year. It's December 14th. You can get 50% off your subscription. And that's just because things are still kind of in the works with you know what we're delivering. But we're going to start delivering in January. I should have uh, my first full course up. And then we're kind of going to be doing the Railscast model, right, where um, you pay for the subscription and then you get these series of videos about a specific thing. And so I get asked a lot about some things related to like careers and leadership. So I'm planning on having some series on those. But besides that, I'd like to do some on like tooling and things like that. So I'm some of the ones I'm looking at are like Docker or Visual Studio Code or things like that. And then I am going to be reaching out to my co-hosts on the shows. I haven't told these guys this yet, so they're probably going, hmm to see if they want to do some series as well and then give them a piece of the revenue on those as that comes in. But it's going to be one subscription. You're not going to have to subscribe. Oh, I want this one and this one and this one and this one. And so I have to pay eight subscriptions to top end devs. We're just going to make it one subscription, make it simple. And then if you are looking to go from junior to senior developer, I am going to be doing a group coaching session, series of sessions. We'll talk every week, help you kind of figure out what the next stages are, uh, even if you're not in a technology that I am exceptionally familiar familiar with, I can help you figure out where where to focus on and help you figure out which relationships you need to work on and things like that. I have a system for this. And so we'll help you implement the system, pull things together, and kind of be the person that people are coming to and wanting to hire as opposed to trying to go out and find a company that will hire you as a senior or that will prepare you to, Uh, Have the conversations and deliver the kinds of results that your boss wants, so that so that they're willing to take you from junior to senior within the company. Beyond that, I I have an obligatory board game pick. It's funny because there's so many good ones out there, and I don't want to just go do like a Settlers of Catan that everybody has played and enjoyed. One of the ones that I've really enjoyed uh, that. It's a little bit more expensive game, but I really, really like it. It's called Scythe. And so there are different classes of board games. This one is kind of a like a production management building type game. Uh, you know, it's not deck building or anything else uh, like some of the other games are. And, and I really, really enjoy it. So effectively, um, you wind up just assigning workers to do certain tasks, and you kind of build up your ability to to do certain things at the different stages of the game. And anyway, I'm, I'm not explaining it well, but I really enjoy playing it with my wife and, and, and others. So I'm going to pick that. Uh, it plays up to four players. A lot of the games that I wind up playing more often play more players just because I get together with bigger groups. But uh, that's definitely a fun one. And we have an expansion to it. And so I think the expansion might let you go to five players. But anyway, it's a terrific game. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And yeah, beyond that, I've also been reading another book. It's called Traffic Secrets by Russell Brunson. And so if you're out there trying to kind of build a SaaS or build some other business where you need to bring in traffic to your website so that you can grow, he kind of works through the whole process there and helps you figure out how to make it happen. And it's, it's kind of an unconventional method, but it really works. So I'm going to go ahead and pick that as well. Uh, Sophie, what are your picks?
1: I will pick, I guess, my own book that we've been talking about, which is Programming Phoenix Live View. Uh, We're working to get it up to date for the latest versions. You can still buy it at any time and you'll get the new releases as they come out. I'll also recommend that folks check out Chris McCord's keynote at ElixirConf to kind of hear what's up with Live View and where it's going. What else? One non-programming pick, I guess, is that I recently rewatched an all-time favorite movie of mine. Have any of you guys seen Timeline with Paul Walker? Mm -hmm. It's so good. Okay. It's just one of those peak, like early 2000s movies. Paul Walker, RIP, like goes back in time to rescue his dad, who's like an archaeologist. And they end up in this medieval battle in the Hundred Years' War. And there's science and knights and bad guys. And it's really a fantastic movie. They just don't make them like that anymore. They don't make them like that anymore. So check out Timeline. Basically great. And that's it.
0: Yeah, I have to agree with you. A lot of the movies these days are pretty formulaic. And so it's like, okay, I know where this is going.
1: (laughs) Well, what I liked about Timeline, and I had forgotten this, is they basically set the parameters of the movie at the beginning where something happens and they're like, we only have five hours and 27 minutes to get back to the future. And then you know that the whole movie is going to play out in this intense time period. So it's like, it's formulaic, but it's not, because that's an unusual conceit, I think, to use. But anyway, it's great. It's a lot of fun.
0: Man, no, I just want to go and hash out movies with you. Anyway, let's go ahead and wrap this up, Sophie. If people want to find you online, get on Twitter. So. Oh,
2: can I add a pick now after you talked about board games? Do it. Do it. So, if, if you want to play board games with people in the pandemic, there's a great game. It's called Tabletop Simulator. And it's literally simulating a table. And there's some modding capabilities. You can actually implement some rules. And there's an active mod community around that, which literally builds games for this game. So, you can basically load the mod and everybody can mm-hmm. play on the table. And b- most of these mods tend to do like setup, right? Like, so say, okay, we're three people, we're playing with this expansion, and then pff, we just build it's the whole it sets up a whole game and for example it's also an official scythe mod which is more how i how i came to think of it and it's like it, it has been my, my my lifesaver in this pandemic because i had a regular board games thing going with friends before the pandemic mm-hmm. and then the pandemic came and nobody wanted to see each other anymore mm-hmm. and that really really saved myself in social life and so tabletop simulator is something really
0: really worth looking into if you want to play board games with friends but can't
4: looks I'm like you can play side down. on it by the way yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. There's another one out there. There's Board Game Arena that you can go play games on as well. That and they have all kinds of stuff. They have some older games too that you can't really buy in the store anymore, but you can go play. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, there there are a lot of terrific resources out there for board game nerds uh, like you and I, I guess. <laughs> Uh, a friend of mine actually owns a board game store, and we've been talking about building uh, or putting together a board game podcast. So if we ever get that launched, I'll let you know where to get that. But uh, yeah, let's go ahead and wrap up. Thanks for coming, Sophie. This was awesome.
1: Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I've just spent the past like couple of days digging into some of these changes in the book, and this was my first chance to actually chat about it. And I had an absolute blast. So thank you guys so much for having me.
3: But we still don't know how to test our hooks. So that's I can't sleep tonight i can't sleep <laughs> oh. Oh, a bit
2: sad. Like I, I would say get get in touch with ellen to save her sleep but we're not going to release this episode until next week and then so like a whole week of no sleep for you sorry ellen sounds like yep. a normal
3: day for me
0: <laughs> so if somebody can can save Ellen's sleep please get in touch yeah all right well uh let's wrap it up here till next time folks max out bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn